right. Welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. I'm very excited to be joined by our guest today, Nick Claremont. Nick is the associate editor at Arc Digital, which if you haven't checked it out, is a great online um, publication that you definitely need to check out. Uh, Arc Digital, they, they do a really good job of publishing a variety of views. Um, so, I mean, I think there's no such thing as a view from nowhere, and we can talk a little bit more about that perhaps. But Arc Digital, I think, does a very good job at incorporating diverse perspectives. So it's a great place to go and be challenged in your thinking. So Nick is an associate editor there. He's also the, uh, the, the columnist of the Word of the Week at the Washington Examiner, which is a, a really fun column that just takes one word per week and dives into a little bit of its history, its current usage, uh, semantics, etymology, um, and then sort of a, I don't know, phenomenology of, of uh, linguistics in some ways. Um, and that's really fun. Uh, he's also a book reviewer and independent author. But Nick, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I just need to tell our listeners a little bit of this story here. So basically, I, I also want to give your your Twitter a plug here. Uh, Nick Claremont one, the number one, N I C K C L A I R M O N T, the number one. Now, Nick, you might agree with me here. Twitter, generally speaking, is a flaming pile of garbage. <laughs> I would I would certainly agree. Uh, I I think every time I hear somebody talk about what like a, a really debilitating addiction feels like and the checklist you might use to, to know that you, you really have a problem and you need to stop. That's I, immediately my mind goes to Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, definitely. I, so I had actually just recently took it off my, my phone because I was spending too much time on it. So now I, I view it exclusively on my iPad and my desktop uh, computer, which has been helpful for me. Um, but I also, I try to do a good job at just curating who I follow and I really try not to follow people who are uh, overly bombastic, overly divisive, who exaggerate stories, et cetera. And I have to say, you're one of the best. So what, you invited me on your podcast to say that you're unfollowing me on Twitter. <laughs> no, I was going to say the opposite, actually, that you are one of the best uh, best follows that I found. And that's how I found you. So, I mean, we don't know each other except through Twitter. Um, I, th I think we follow each other now on Twitter. But uh, you're someone, yeah, I was kind of getting into the sort of arc digital universe because I really appreciate what you guys do at your magazine and, uh, ended up finding your account. And I just really appreciated your, your nuanced take on stuff and especially your, your take on words because words matter so much. Uh, so, you know, for our, for our listeners who are on Twitter, uh, check out Nick Claremont one, um, great follow there. Lots of great takes. Um, I also just, I try to, I try to follow people who don't fit neatly into a left-right binary? I mean, maybe you would even disagree with me on that. Maybe you, you see yourself fitting into that better. But I don't I don't know. So I, I, I basically feel like the rule is, I think the universal rule ought to be, uh, people should just go with what, they, what other people say. And uh, as best I can tell, uh, nobody seems to agree on where I fit in a left-right binary. So I, I agree that I don't fit. So that. you're doing well. <laughs> yeah, there we, there we go. I mean, and I, I think I see myself in that way as well. And Sally probably sees the same. I mean, certainly in some respects, I'm right of center. In other respects, I think I'm left of center. Well, if you but... make both sides angry, then I guess you're doing something right. Yeah. yeah and, and also happy sometimes. But, right, yeah, sure. Uh, right, right. Of course. <laughs> Ideally. But the, the angry people certainly will, will let you know more on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, I don't want to I don't want to sort of be a stumbling block to any listeners and encourage you to get on Twitter. But if you're already on there <laughs> and you're and you're needing good people to follow, check out uh, check out Nick. But so well, I appreciate that. So, Nick, um, you and Sally and I share a an appreciation for words and for language. We named our podcast vernacular. And obviously uh, there's a sort of linguistic 
uh, undertone to that name. I mean, words are so important. And I was just thinking as I was driving to the gym today and I'm sort of anticipating our podcast conversation tonight, um, I was thinking about how you know, words and, and their meaning are socially constructed, right? So when you have a sequence of letters, there's nothing sort of, uh, there's there's nothing I think, like if we can use philosophical or um, phenomenological terminology, words are not universals, right? Um, at least I would contend. I'm sure there are people who would disagree, but I would say words are not universals. You know, so we I take sort of a nominalist approach to words in that their meaning is socially constructed, which is why we have vast differences in language across um, across languages. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how, how much I, I, I think that people, people often kind of use this thing as the thin end of a wedge where they say, you know, they'll say like, people will say like words are socially constructed or, uh, language evolves, right. Which are both things that I absolutely agree with. Sure. And that I think that you're using in, in the, you know, sort of correct sense. And then they take that to mean like it's a free for all Yes. or, um, or that since words are socially constructed, we can construct our whole social universe just by using the right words. And, um, I, so I'm I'm always in this really odd position where I'm like the person who's incredibly obsessed with words, who's arguing that words are not actually that important, because which is not the, not what I think. I think words are incredibly important, and I spend all my time obsessing over them. But then I'll, in any individual case, I'll hear somebody saying, "Well, if only we use this word rather than that word about this one thing, then like this real thing in the world would change." And that to me seems like the opposite of the. Uh, conclusion you should draw from the understanding that words are socially constructed that the you know the world of uh, the, the realm of social constructions can only kind of affect itself and in the realm of real stuff over here you know these things are kind of non-overlapping and so people will often say well if only we didn't call this thing by the wrong term then we would you know what, whatever social reality might might evaporate whether it's basically you know some sort of inequality or injustice or whether it's a like literally like a government policy change or some, something like very substantial and yeah. real that is not not just not just a social reality and then uh you know not not a perceptual social reality and and then i i just think that they're giving way too much power to words yeah, no, I think that's that's a hundred percent correct, and that's exactly where I was going with my with my comments. I mean, you articulated it a lot better than I was even thinking it in my head, but but that's exactly right. And you know, to say that they're socially constructed is not to say that they have no meaning, but it's actually in some ways the opposite. It sort of stresses their importance and our, our the importance of being sort of semantically or terminologically accurate when we do discourse with each other because. You know, I think we'll only be able to communicate ideas as well as we have shared understandings of what the words mean that we use to express those ideas, right? Right, and it's 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 sort of this like I mean I, I don't know how um, like wonky I'm allowed to get in terms of like philosophy of language. Super stuff. wonky. Let's go. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, so like when I, I one of the things that I think about in the back of my head and never let into my words column is I think about Quine a lot and that like in terms of his essay, Two Dogmas of Empiricism, it, I, which is not, I actually don't agree with overall. I think there's a, an important insight in there, which is that you can think of language as in, rather than having fuzzy shades of meaning or um, only sort of successfully shared 
understandings. You could just think of words as having a ton of homonyms. Uh, it's basically like, you know, in the dictionary, when a word has like meaning one, meaning two, and meaning three, and they're like really similar. It's like that, except like this meaning one through a million. Yeah. And uh, I think that's fine. Like there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing particularly uh, like difficult to wrap your head around about that picture. It's just extremely inelegant. Uh, and like nobody wants the dictionary that has a million different that's like exhaustively trying to say here are all of the usages in public circulation of this one word. And like that just sounds like a really annoying dictionary it would take up your whole house. Right. Yeah, totally. And so <laughs> like the, but that's how I think like, it, it's OK for everybody to have their meaning. And like even you and I could speak back and forth and we could have, you know, very, very slightly different, but precise intentions of how we use the word vernacular or something. And then, and that's okay. As long as I know what you mean, you know what I mean. And so I know that when I hear my roommate say the word vernacular, and when I hear the two of you say the word vernacular, like I have, they're two different words and that's okay. But if, if then I go around making this like kind of moral claim that like you're using it wrong, even though I know perfectly well what you mean, or when you use it and I say, well, when you use it, it doesn't have this implication that my version of it has, even though it's just a different word. So that's okay that it doesn't have that implication. Then uh, you know, things start to fall apart because I'm insisting that we have this shared understanding that actually we don't have to have because we're just using different words. So maybe that's like very, very abstract. Um, well, I mean, I think it's, but, it's abstract, but I think it's necessarily abstract, right? We have to start abstract to understand how we come to you know from an epistemological or phenomenological perspective to understand how we come to shared meanings of words but i appreciate what you said about you know you and you and i and sally having this conversation about vernacular and we might have slightly different meanings in our heads about what that means but we are precise in our intentions and one of the concerns that i have just surveying the landscape of of rhetoric around current events today is that i don't think most most you know political and media actors today have those precise intentions. I think, um, I think either there's an explicit sort of um, incentive to inflame that is acted on, or there's a deliberate sort of willful naivety and ignorance. Um, in which case, you know, someone's just sort of adding their own voice to the echo chamber, right? Um, right. And, so there's and, this term I, in philosophy where people will say like they'll, they'll have a apparent disagreement and you and I could have like an apparent disagreement. We'd say, Oh, that's not a vernacular X. And I could say, well, it is a vernacular X. And then we could freak out about it. And then maybe we would realize, Oh, you just intended a different thing. We're talking past each other. And then we would say, Oh, we had a, a quote, merely verbal disagreement. And I, I feel like in media disagreements, particularly in sort of magazine and opinion world, you know, this subcategory of the media that I sort of exist in and know really well, and that I think has totally collapsed and it's like really bad. And all my favorite writers, like, you know, I have this bookshelf, I'm looking at it right now, and this like opinions by Graham Greene and George Orwell, and like there's all these great people, and they all like, you know wrote these incredible essays and they would reply to each other and they'd fight, but it was, and we called it like a critical culture. And I hate some of them. I hate T.S. Eliot. I think he was a bad person, but like, it was great what he wrote. And then now we just have these totally merely verbal disagreements back and forth all the time. Like in the middle of the night last night, I got myself very worked up because there was this seeming talking point going around about uh, whether the word militia was this sort of, uh, racial code word as well as bo as well as a, a compliment being used oh, for wow. 
groups of heavily armed white men in fake military outfits LARPing around in <laughs> uh, cities in Kentucky and stuff. And I was like, well, I remember like literally a month and a half ago that there was a, a black militia in that very same city in Kentucky. And so it isn't selectively only used for white groups of men doing this. But also, more importantly, the reason this is a silly take on words is that we don't like these people. The people in the media describing these people are not being polite to them when they describe like heavily armed militia of white nationalists going around and, you know, doing like taking over the Wisconsin state house building in an anti-mask protest or something. Another story I remember from only a month and a half before the other one. Yeah. Like that, that take assumes like three factually wrong things and all it does because, and it's what it thinks it's doing is making some sort of important justice point about, something i don't know from law and and the implicit bias or something but all it's actually doing is just like poking a hole in the dictionary for no reason yeah no that's a it's a great point i mean poking a hole in the dictionary is a is a a a colorful turn of phrase that i think accurately describes a lot of what's going on here i mean i just think of i mean so i've sort of cheekily thought about writing a a sort of an op-ed piece lately um, in which I would argue that basically nothing has meaning anymore because I think we have arrived at a point where we don't have a shared understanding of even the most basic terms, you know, and, and it's not just terms about, um, you know, political action or political freedoms. I think it extends far beyond that, but it's maybe most flagrant in the political arena. And, and I think you're right. I mean, um, you know, a uh, sort of any action that a journalist doesn't like becomes an act of overt fascism or, you know, maybe maybe uh, maybe another example here. I just I saw I saw today that um, uh, Vice President Biden, the former vice president, uh, said that Trump's desire to and expressed expressed intent to fill the Supreme Court seat of um, Ginsburg is an abuse of power. And we can I I saw people call it court packing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. that's that's funny. So, yeah. And so, so, you know, you and I can agree or disagree on whether or not that is good politics, whether or not it is moral, whether or not it's prudential. I mean, all of those things are agree because I don't know my own opinion. Yeah, that's fair. But we can we can argue about it or we can discuss it. Right. But I think to to call it an abuse of power or to just label it court packing is, is neither of those. I mean, it's clearly neither of those things. And it does a grave disservice to what actually is court packing or what actually is an abuse of power. And then the, yeah, the, the, I, I the mean, reason that's, that's an issue, right, is because then we become tuned out to actual abuses of power. Or then, you know, when there's actual court packing, then perhaps, you know, people think that we've already gotten to that point because it was labeled right. court packing already. Right. It Yeah, it, it takes some of the sort of, it, it dilutes the, the rhetorical space or something. Yeah. But I, I mean, I also think, I think it's important to point out that as well, it, that that's a, like, this is a yes. And I absolutely agree with your point, but it also, it, it's not just bad because of the negative practical consequences. Like it's not just an instrumental point. It's bad sure. in itself. Yeah. Like, that's, that's really, a good point. really abusive hyperbole yeah. is just a, just a bad thing to do. It's a bad way to talk. You shouldn't use other people's listening to you. Like, sorry to use a noun like that, but like you, you just shouldn't speak that way. You shouldn't use the English language that way. And I remember like I was, I was at the Atlantic as a, you know, effectively as a, as a fellow, like the bottom of the totem pole at the Atlantic for part, part of the time at the, at the politics section when, you know, during, basically during the entire 2015, 2016 primary. Oh, I'm sorry. That must've been terrible. It, it was a mess. And, uh, and I just, I just remember 
feeling as everyone else did this 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 horrible i don't know cold in my spine about what was happening politically into america but but then this other thing too that there was just this all out assault from all sides on the english language that this this horrible thing was happening that this sort of great illiteracy was taking over um and that and that there were two aspects of it and i think that's this kind of is what's the first thing that came to my mind when you when you were describing that hyperbole that you just noted that like sometimes somebody who describes filling a supreme court seat using a legitimate if extremely unfair and self-contradictory constitutional process um like sometimes somebody calls that a an act of either court packing or an abuse of power because they mean it and i think maybe that happens second and what happens first is that they say it because they're using a rhetorical device or a dramatic device and it's like hyperbole or whatever else and i don't know which one is worse the sort of self-deluded person or the person that means to delude others but um i do, I do think it's important to keep them separate in your mind yeah uh, right There's, i mean rhetoric and political like political rhetoric and the use of hyperbole ain't going away but um being able to distinguish between facts and nonsense i think is something that it is is a battle we can at least continue to wage yeah that's totally fair and maybe it's maybe it's unfair of me to you know cite a politician as an example of abusive rhetoric going awry because i think you're right we should kind of expect that from our political class because that's i mean you know fundamentally they they secure their positions by appealing to masses you appeal to masses by sort of inflaming passions etc and so that's not a good thing, but it's something that perhaps we should expect because it has yeah. been like that for a long time. But I, I think what's more disheartening to me is that the institutions that should be the standard bearers and the protectors of the language are sometimes the ones who are sort of leading the charge on Absolutely. on dismantling it. Um, There's this note in, in the beginning of, I reviewed a while back um, Kevin Williamson's last book. And, you know, Kevin Williamson uh, has his, is his own whole big issue i guess but um th but there's this there's this really interesting note in the it's just an obs single observation that uh kind of in, in america journalists see themselves as a sort of subsidiary part of ultimately the the world of and the class of politics yeah that's and that that's in england true, they see themselves as the world of as, as a very small and ultimately kind of crummy part of the world of, of literature oh wow and i think that this division explains a great deal uh that you are one and you know a part of one and the same thing as as a politician if you are in, in your mind if you're a young american journalist it really screws up i think a, a lot of the way that uh oh, it, it gives it gives young journalists and older ones a, a a reason to talk in ways that they really ought to have a reason not to and um and that explains why you find people saying things that either just aren't true or that you that you would only even wish to say if you kind of saw yourself as as a PR person really to go back to the point on abusive rhetoric Nick I want to hear what you think might be some words that are have either entirely lost their meaning or similar to Zach's examples of fascism and abusive power are words that are just being horribly abused and and have effectively lost their meaning yeah, I also want to be clear. When I say abusive rhetoric, I don't mean like uh, 
I mean, like I'm, I'm using the phrase abuse of language. So the words are the things being abused, not like people using language to abuse another person. Like right. Yeah. Really yeah. Got it. Person. Yeah. Um, let me think about because I, I mean, actually, you can you can completely dismantle a person by being very terminologically oh, precise I, I in your rhetoric. That, yeah. And I mean, and also, I mean, I don't when I say that, I think that people give too much value to words. I also like I think you can really, really hurt somebody with words. And there are horrible things you can do to people by saying incredibly nasty things. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean I think that any speech acts or acts of speech expression should be criminal, but that, that's not to say that I, that's not a defense of many acts of speech expression. No, I, um, I, uh, I was actually thinking about what to name this podcast. And I was like, maybe we should name it something about, you know, some play on the sticks and stones, but you know, words will always hurt. Or I don't know, something like that. <laughs> so um, I, I take your point. Yeah. Words, words are powerful. Yeah. That's why we're talking about this. Right. I mean, they're, they're, this, this is where I keep, I always get back to this take. Words are both more and less powerful than people kind of credit them for. Yeah. Um, so to get to particular terms that I think are, um, have lost their meaning, I, that's like such a big claim. I mean, fascism is a great example where like it, it almost never had its, like, if you really think about what unites the ideology of Hitler and Mussolini, it's complex. And I don't know that I know how to answer that. It's really a question for historians and not you know, linguists, but, but anyway, like everybody always says, well, at least you have the, the worship of militarism. And then you're like, well, there was a, you know, there was a fascism in, in Portugal at the time. And they're like, they never took over anyone else's country. They're yeah. just, I mean, not, not then anyway. Um, so I, I am actually, I should say, I have a piece coming out in tablet on Tuesday that is about, uh, sort of an, an analysis of wokeness, uh, a word that I was recently told I shouldn't use. Uh, because it sort of uh, makes me sound aligned with people that I, I, I wouldn't wish to call my allies. I didn't agree with that view, but I was told that. Uh, Wait, so I'm, so trying, to, I'm said, trying to parse this. So presumably by saying wokeness, you are casting aspersions on what is termed by the right woke culture. And so people would think you're aligning yourself with with the right. Is that is that right? I don't think so. I think the idea is that it just makes me sound either unserious or potentially racist. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Um, so I, w- I was told that in order to sort of appeal to uh, people in their young or mid-20s, that it, I would be most rhetorically effective if I avoided the use of this term. Okay. And that, that's just what I was told. Um, so I have an article coming out in Tablet that's it's about wokeies where I say instead of trying to define wokeness as sort of an ideology or a political project, just think of it as a sort of language. And it's you, instead of, you know, what, what is, what, what does a woke person believe? It's more like, what does a woke person sound like? And how do they speak? Uh, and in that, um, I don't know that every term I name or every kind of type of phrasing I, I name in it is, one that is rendered meaningless. Some of them I would say never had any meaning. I would say cultural appropriation never meant anything, but, uh, there are other ones that uh, at least are, are less meaningful now than they were previously. Wokies, by but, the way, I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like the language of, uh, those little bears on Endor. Is that what they're called? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, what are they called again? The Wookiees. The Wookiees, I think. No, no. I think uh, the little Endor bears are Ewoks, which are intentionally the Oh, Wookiees are okay. You can tell that we're not Star Wars people here because <laughs> Chewbacca is a Wookie, right? Right. Okay. Yes. So he would speak right. Wookiees. <laughs> Wookiees. I, you know, this is a problem with my essay that unfortunately is now you know editing is closed. But I think it 
it works fine uh written out anyway it sounds so no funny. totally yeah <laughs> i wouldn't think that if i were reading it if just hearing it it makes or me maybe think of that. Or maybe I've I've written a complicated exegesis of, of Star Wars. the language of Endor, and you, I just <laughs> I'm misleading you. Um, so, uh, I mean, I would definitely say, uh, okay, here, bodies, spaces, platform, decolonize, which is a, so decolonize is a word that used to mean something, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Deco- like I, I used to live in, I used to live in Ireland, right? Ireland was a colony. It's America was a colony. India was a colony. They were decolonized. Um, or I would say they weren't decolonized. They, they, they fought a revolution right, in, right. at least, you know, in, in, uh, Ireland and in America and, and they did something arguably more admirable, even, uh, even still in, in India. And, you know, it's like, these are important distinctions, but they would, were they decolonized? No, we, we kick, we kick those damn Brits out. Right. But, uh, but when I hear a term like decolonize your bookshelf, um, don't don't really understand how to relate like what actually happened in India. Oh my goodness! And how it stopped being ruled by a group of kind of arrogant people in London to that term. Like yeah. th- those two things seem like they're intended to be related. They're trying to sneak a relationship in my mind through my mind without any sort of conscience conscious consideration. But but they but they aren't doing that right i mean yeah totally um so like that would be a, a great one uh erasure is a word mm. that, that means nothing yep. at all right i mean if you say you're erasing me but the but nothing has happened you, I, I, what it, I think what, what it intends to say is uh you are failing to acknowledge me yes but if but by be but if somebody fails to acknowledge you you don't cease to exist it's more like and ignoring our race <laughs> cease to exist right yeah um, so, I mean, that, that one annoys me, you know, and, um, I, uh, I mean, I've always had a tremendous problem with problematic, uh, and my problem with problematic is that when people say something's problematic, they very rarely follow up with, and my problem with that is mm-hmm. they kind of just tar it with They just sort of, yeah, label it as problematic and then that right. makes their case. I mean, the word problematic is an old word. It's fine. Sure. It's a p- perfectly fine word, but it, but it has a sort of related uh, euphemism that is just under its wing. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, so, a lot of these are familiar to me, and and I did, um, a, you know, a master's at Oxford, which is, it, it, the, the program that I did was was very sort of academic, and there were a lot of aspiring academics in there. And, and I could how even... How long is that program going to retain its name, by the way? Uh, great question. Yeah, great question. We'll see. Um, but... Uh, a, a lot of aspiring academics and the, the, you know, the, the, the terminology just often becomes the same. And so you said problematic. I remember hearing problematize a lot. There's a lot oh, of yeah. problematizing that goes on. Well, we verb, we verbify a lot of nouns. Totally. Too. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, hege- hegemonic is another old, big one. Oh yeah. That's, um, I think that's, that's a little out. There's also this thing where if you criticize something in print, uh, you always have to put an asterisk on it. If you could, I mean, sorry, if you criticize a linguistic trend, that's sort of an academies thing. Uh, you have to put an asterisk on it because you'll you'll sound silly in two years because it'll have everyone will have moved on and forgotten. Yes, that's very that's very uh, true. And you know, uh, I think that like no nobody really is talking about the cis heteropatriarchy now, and you sound you sound silly if you r- criticize that. But it was a it was a thing that I seriously heard in college. Sure, yeah. Um, um, so 
Yeah, I mean, it's, othering, right? Wait, oh, othering. Oh, yeah, I forgot about othering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh man, it, it, Sorry, is, it is so interesting how these these things come in and out of fashion. So you might appreciate this. Um, this has bugged me to no end. Going back to this idea of sort of the, the standard bearers or who is supposed to be the standard bearers of the English language, um, one of the things that I detest the most about the modern political establishment, and it's one hundred percent driven by the move to digital and clickbait, but is the it's the headline that is two sentences long and it has sort of a setup and then it has the shocking second sentence, you know? And so, <laughs> so, and I, and you know, an example of this would be, you know, she thought moving to Pennsylvania would be paradise. And then the murders began <laughs> like, like these really sort of jarring headlines that are designed to grip you. But what, what they normally do is um, over prepare you for a story that is nowhere near as dramatic. Hey, as its at headline. least there's a hook though. That's better than the clickbait headline that says she moved to California, you know, she moved to Pennsylvania and you'll never believe what happened next. That's true. That is true. Yeah. It's like, you have to click to find I mean, out. No, <laughs> I just, I just watched the movie witness with Harrison Ford which is like a, I don't know, I want to say like a 1986 movie or something. Great. Really great movie. And, you know, he, he was a detective in Pennsylvania who moved in with the Amish and you'll never believe what happened next. It's great. (laughs) Perfect. He solved the murder. Everyone's going to see, go see witness. So I I think, uh, so we've outlined some problems here, Nick, and we're not going to solve them tonight, but I guess that would be my next question for you. Like what's, what's the way forward here? is there a way out of this? We already talked about how Twitter is a flaming pile of garbage. We've talked about how the leading institutions have sort of abandoned their uh, position uh, at the vanguard of, of this stuff. So what is the way out if there is one? Is it just people, you know, podcasting with each other about the importance of language and, and this, it turns <laughs> I, into a movement? Well, and then what language do you use if the language is shifting from every two years and words are I, coming I in and out of vogue? I think a few things. I mean, look, there's, there's a, I personally just choose to remember that most people sort of speak the same language. They speak like ordinary people. It's not Democrats or Republicans. It's not like religious people or irreligious people. It's not black people or white people. Almost everybody can absolutely understand each other and kind of speaks the same language. And if they speak a little bit, you know, there's like formal, like linguists use different designations for kind of different uh, dialects within American English. There's like technically like AAVE, African American Vernacular English. And then there's standard written English, as it's called. And that's considered like uh, hegemonic, that that's the one that effectively we're speaking right now. Uh, but I, either way, the point is everybody understands each other. I mean, that, that the church that i go to like it's everyone speaks african-american vernacular english and biblical english and they're like two like very different things and everybody understands both of them perfectly well uh and then you know, and then there's like this almost impossible to understand thing where you know i read a sentence uh i was just reading the new yorker like two hours ago and i i, I read like a a review of a very bad show on Amazon, the boys and it's got all this like pseudo academic jargon stuff in it and I, I, you know, I consider myself somebody with probably a pretty high reading comprehension and like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to take from some of these sentences because they just have these like polysyllabic mishmash of words with half an etymology in French and, and half in Latin. I'm like, all right, well, this word was made up six months ago and you're just kind of showing off that you were in grad school then. Right. So I, I would say like in, in some sense, like step one is remember... The problem is not as, as bad as it seems. Step two is remember the problem is really, really bad. Uh, 
and um, and basically just try to retain the sense that like people trying to. Here's another way to say this. Uh, in college, I had this roommate. Both of us were very. Here's a great word: heuristic. Um, heuristic, which is a word which basically means having a tendency to like really, really love arguing. Uh, it's about the the I think Greek god Eris, and um, you know this is just people who just genuinely enjoy arguing and so we were two philosophy students and we lived together and we argued all the time we would sometimes have to stop and say wait are we having any substantial disagreement right now or are we not and the way that the kind of rubric we developed for determining whether this was the case was to say is our disagreement we had this big bookshelf over our mantle and we would say is our disagreement over there in the in the encyclopedia or is it over there in the dictionary and if it's just in the dictionary if it's just about how we use words Let's stop arguing. We don't really disagree with each other. And if it's over there in the encyclopedia, if it's about a fact in the world that like that book describes, then let's keep arguing. That's great. We have we have something real to, to you know care about, fighting about. But uh, I think these days just too you know, it went it went from twenty percent to sixty percent of what we bothered with. There's all this dictionary fighting. And I just I think just noticing, just stopping 20 minutes into some fight and saying, this is in the dictionary, screw it, uh, would, would do a huge amount of good and, uh, and can really cause people to realize I lose nothing by unilaterally disarming on my side here. Unfortunately, that's a lot easier to do in person than on Twitter. Very true. That is true. So also delete your Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I don't think social media helps our language or communicating. It seems to hurt it more. Yeah, I mean, you you find um, the word the word scandal of the week that I decided was too frivolous to bother to cover was at the Emmys. Uh, somebody named I don't know if it was Zendaya or Zendaya uh, won an Emmy. She's twenty four. She was in a show uh, whose name I can't recall right now, and um, and she I guess is is really great. And so she won an Emmy, and I think was the youngest ever actress to win an Emmy. She's a very good actress. Anyway. I haven't seen the show, but. So, um, so the New York Post said, you know, in, in upset when she wins an Emmy. Okay. And like, you know, 100,000 angry Twitterers say, upset? I wasn't upset. <laughs> oh, right? my goodness. And, and there's like a whole little outrage cycle for two hours. Wow. About that, like, this just misunderstanding of one of the homograms of the word upset. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So, Nick, how are you trying to solve these problems on Arc Digital? Uh, that's a great question. We, uh, I mean, you guys gave such a, a lovely and a generous introduction to what our digital is. I, I would feel like if I were to toot its horn, I would just be, um, uh, you know, being being too kind to myself. But um, at Arc Digital, we we really just think that the um, the opinion space uh, is sort of a desert right now. Uh, there's there's too much going on in the opinion space in journalism that is sort of either predictable or um, merely inflammatory that that you know kind of exists. There's mostly read by the people who hate it for the for the high of getting to hate right. something. Yeah. And so we are trying to be, you know, we we don't have the resources to be the whole newspaper, but we actually really think we could recreate just the opinion page. Uh, in a way that really is better. And uh, we can do that by having 
not just more diversity of thought, but just flat out higher caliber stuff. Uh, stuff that is different in its literary form in terms of just, you know, not exactly the same length of op-eds and stuff, but also just more interesting people. And so we just try to find interesting people and that is our lodestar. And we could, you know, we, we can and do have lots of conversations about, you know, all sorts of editorial theory of how to balance this and that, or balance is the wrong word, but you know, whatever about how to publish our publication. Um, but it really just comes down to what if you actually made an opinion section about publishing interesting things that are well argued and, uh, Somehow that makes us radically different from a great many other publications. I mean, that's, uh, that's, you would think that's, yeah, it's, it's wonderful for you guys. guys. It's kind of the great shame though, isn't it? That, you know, if you want that, you have to go to a place like arc digital that is, you know, kind of an upstart. And I hope you guys have great success in the future because you're doing great work, but you're not getting that at the places where you really yeah. should be getting it. People are leaving, people are leaving, um, real and metaphorical money on the table. Uh, you know, I, I think I was talking about this recently, maybe on Twitter that like, I recently just happened for professional reasons to be going back and reading some 2012 and 2013 New Republic, which is not even their golden age. And I mean, wow, just the quality of yeah. arguments and yeah. writing and just the subject matter choice uh, of, of that publication is just, just extraordinary. It's just an incredible product and I love it. And, um, and then I clicked over to, you know, just TNR.com and it's, it's not good. Not the same, you know, yeah. not to cast aspersions, but, Wait, yes, absolutely to do that. Um, so, you know, it's it's a shame. Uh, it's it's just for me, I love magazines. I grew up loving magazines. I, you know, I I getting, you know, the the I knew what day of the month Esquire and you know, Vanity Fair and whatever like, you know, The New Republic and The Atlantic were coming in my mailbox every month when I was 16 years old. I love magazines. And it's watching them basically cease to exist. Their names still exist. Their brands still exist. Yeah. But they just don't exist. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't mean they never publish anything good, to be clear. There's all sorts of good stuff being published. But the promise was anything you click on will be good, mm-hmm. will be – you may not like it, but it'll be a serious argument. Somebody will have written it and then somebody else will have made sure there isn't anything radically wrong with it. <laughs> it isn't poorly written. It isn't – presenting a case that uh negates itself it, it it's a it's a good piece and um the you know the hit rate is just it's it's a lot lower than it used to be so it's you have to find the, this it's not like we're you know the sam is dot press or we're like oppressed or anything we're just plugging away doing our little thing and um a lot of really great we get to publish all these great famous sometimes sometimes people merely ought to be famous but uh it's just a very strange world to exist in uh as far as the publishing world because people used to really love the thing that they worked in if they were an art critic they loved art if they were a music critic they loved music and if they were uh just merely part of the critical culture as a journalist they loved journalism they loved the culture of journalism and now they seem to hate it and be trying to destroy it yeah, very so, well said. I can't I can't add anything to that, but I will encourage listeners to go check out Arc Digital, ARC, arcdigital.media. You can go check it out there. Um, Nick, we're just about out of time, so we'll wrap it up there. I know we had more things to talk about. I wanted to uh, talk to you about a, an op-ed 
uh, possibility that involved Flannery O'Connor and your your previous reference to wokeness. Uh, also, I, I we mentioned it a little bit before recording. I think we just ran out of time, but it would have been good to talk about the uh, the handmade scandal <laughs> surrounding the uh, possible nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the to SCOTUS. So we'll have to save that for another day. But we really appreciate the time, Nick. This is a great conversation and. You're fighting the good fight, uh, not just dark digital, but everywhere you publish. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for uh, defending the value of words and keeping us honest and calling the shots as you see them, um, rather than just sort of a falling victim to the the tendency of people who write publicly to uh, to just sort of cast stones from across one side of the, the lake to another. So you're doing good work, and we, we appreciate it, and we thank you for joining joining us tonight. Thank you. It's very kind, and thank you so much for having me. I'm by your side